you know, I get in my email all day long, um, fundraisers that Biden is doing and Kamala Harris is doing, fundraisers Trump is doing. Uh, most of them have been virtual, obviously, during the pandemic. Uh, by the way, cases are increasing all over the country. We're now hearing about the second wave, uh, people warning that this could be, we could quickly descend back into where things were in April. Uh, we are also uh, at the uh, economic despair is legit. U.S. job jobless claims rise to 898,000 with layoffs still high. I'll read this real quick. The number of Americans seeking unemployment benefits rose last week by the most in the last two months to 898,000, a historically high number and evidence that layoffs remain a hindrance uh, to the economy's recover from the pandemic recession. Thursday's report from the Labor Department coincides with other recent data that have signaled a slowdown in hiring. So I think the unemployment picture, which to me is a disaster. I showed you this yesterday. But I mean, just look at from September all the way on the right. You see that category 4,918, excuse me, 4,918. That's how many people have been unemployed for 15 to 26 weeks. That's 4,918,000, just round that to 5 million. Right under it, 2,405,000. It's the last, all the way to the right, under September 2020. So that, four, that almost 5 million category is about to descend into 27 weeks or more of being unemployed. The Labor Department, the Federal Reserve, declares that as permanent job loss. So we're, we are... Those 5 million people are about to join those 2.5 million people in permanent job loss for 27 weeks or more. And oh, by the way, they haven't had any expanded unemployment now for almost three months. So think of that. Think of that number with what I'm about to show you. This afternoon, Joe Biden did a fundraiser with Chris Corgi as the main host. Chris Corgi. As the main host, uh, Chris Corgi is the finance chair for the Democratic National Committee. That would be the deputy, the number two man to know your values, Tom Perez. What do, who cares, Jordan? Who cares? Who's this guy? What do we care? I'm about to tell you. So Chris Corgi, I did a piece on this uh, last Sunday, excuse me, last Sunday, uh, last year. Uh, for those of you OG status coors. Chris Corgi, who Joe Biden just did a fundraiser with this afternoon, is a mega, 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 mega Democratic Party donor. Hint, that's why he got the DNC chair finance position, because the DNC is just littered with lobbyists and corporate donors as executives. Um, he is also a mega donor to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, that bastion of progressive uh, progressive politics uh bill clinton as well as hillary clinton but it gets better uh DNC, i'm just going to read you a little bit from my story uh, that i wrote last year i'll drop it in the super chat if you want to read along chris Corgi, dnc chair tom perez has vowed neutrality during the 2020 democratic primary three years after the party by all objective measures tossed its full body on the scale to make hillary clinton the democratic nominee over bernie sanders but Perez's mission may be complicated by the man he's appointed as finance chair of the DNC. 
Chris Corgi, a Florida real estate mogul, attorney, former lobbyist, and prolific money man, who the New York Times once advised presidential candidates to make their first stop before deciding whether to run. Corgi's son, Andrew, seems to agree, dubbing his dad K-Money and K-Stacks. One lawmaker who's benefited from Corgi's cash is controversial former DNC chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, or as Jimmy Dore likes to say, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. It's my best impersonation. As well as former Secretary of State and 2016 Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, who Corgi once referred to as a big sister to him. So, you with me? Mega donor for Debbie Wasserman Schultz, mega donor for Hillary Clinton, mega donor for Bill Clinton, called Hillary Clinton like a big sister. This is who Joe Biden's doing a fundraiser with this afternoon. And he was given the DNC finance chair position by Tom Perez because he's a massive donor. And that's how positions are handed out in the United Corporations of America. I digress. Corgi donated $2,700 to Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, during her 2018 re-election campaign, but maybe more importantly, donated the same amount during her 2016 primary contest against surprise progressive insurgent and Sanders-endorsed Florida professor Tim Canova. At the time, Wasserman Schultz was, for the first time, vulnerable of losing her seat in the face of Canova, who received $3.8 million in small-dollar donations from 209,000 individual donors to compete with Wasserman Schultz's big-money machine. Canova ultimately lost by 6,775 votes, but not without controversy. Uh, you know the story. They destroyed the paper ballots in that race and all that. Overall, Corgi donated 13400 to Wasserman Schultz's campaign since 2011. He also gave a, the DNC significant amount a year before Wasserman Schultz was named chairwoman. According to Open Secrets, Corgi donated 15000 to the DNC in April 2010, and a year later, his gal, Wasserman Schultz, was named the chairwoman. See how that works? Combing through financial records, Status Quo found that Corgi donated 5000 to the DNC in Wasserman Schultz's first month as chairwoman in 2011. Overall, he sunk 60718 into the DNC's coffers during Wasserman Schultz's reign from 2011 through her resignation on the eve of the DNC convention in 2016. So... Okay, Corgi's support for Hillary and Bill Clinton has been even more pronounced. He's raised millions for both, dating back to the 90s as one of their top bundlers. Since 2005, he's donated $21,700,000. Oh, excuse me. Since 2005, he's donated 21,700 directly to Clinton's campaign committees. In 2016, he gave 41,000 to two joint fundraising committees between the Clinton campaign and the DNC, 25,000 to the Hillary Action Fund, and 16,000 to Hillary Victory Fund, a controversial joint fundraising committee between the Clinton campaign that Politico called money laundering. He's also donated between 100000 and 250000 to the Clinton Foundation. Holy cow, he loves his big sister, Hillary Clinton. So, in the political circle of life, Corgi's support for Wasserman Schultz makes sense. She's a powerful Florida congresswoman who's known to have a transactional relationship with big Democratic donors. She's also a longtime ally of Hillary Clinton, having served as co-chair for her 08 presidential campaign. 
Wasserman Schultz's previous entrenchment in Clinton world would have endeared her to Corgi, who described his relationship with the former Secretary of State as going beyond writing checks. On Hillary Clinton, she was almost like a big sister, really caring. She would offer advice, he told the Miami Herald. Yeah, you know, I wonder if he, she'd be offering advice if you were leaving $16 to her campaigns rather than 16,000. Just a thought. You know, I know my non-existent big sister uh, loves to give me advice when I shower her with campaign cash. Just a thought. But I want to move down. Corgi also went to bat for his big sister in 2016 and clearly has held a grudge against Bernie Sanders since. As HuffPost reported in December 2018, Corgi retweeted a tweet calling Bernie Sanders, quote, Dangerous to the future of the Democratic Party. During the 2016 campaign, Corgi tweeted out, There's no choice. The only burn the middle class will feel from Bernie is the pain from all the tax increases. Both tweets have since been deleted. When I wrote the story, I asked uh, James Zogby, Bernie Sanders supporter, surrogate for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and DNC committee member man, what he thought of Chris Corgi being appointed as the DNC finance chair, considering his ties to Hillary Clinton, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Bill Clinton. Uh, he was appointed, by the way, as DNC finance chair during the still active primary between Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Kamala, uh, this year's primary. Appointments get made and we have no idea until they're done deals. It would have taken nothing, especially given what happened in the last election. It would have taken nothing for Perez to give us advance notice and even talk to the Bernie people on the DNC. But to come out with this and then after a couple of articles and say, oh, no, he's pledged neutrality is nonsense. It's a backhanded way of dealing with a problem that needs to be addressed straight out front. And that is, is the party going to put its thumb on the scale? Is the party going to be accountable or are we going to have to wait for the next Donna Brazil book to get written before we know what goes on? And the answer is apparently nothing has changed. And that's troubling. Zogby concluded that Corgi's appointment creates a situation where you, quote, have to be a naysayer, ultimately making this an unacceptable way to run a political party. Here's a little corruption for you. Corgi also don donated to and bundled, at least bundled, meaning raised money for the campaign, at least 500000 for former President Obama, according to the Miami New Times. In 2012, he held, hosted a fundraiser for Obama at his home, at his homes, at his seven bedroom home, eight bathroom home in Pinecrest, Florida. Uh, Corgi, he also raised $7 million for former Vice President Al Gore. Well, it just so happens uh, after all that, Obama uh, passed a law that helped real estate companies. He was a real estate guy. Isn't that interesting? So you asked me, Jordan, I get it. This guy's corrupt, but who cares? I mean, who cares that Biden held a fundraiser for him? I care. Now, what I love about this, what I love about this is Joe Biden doing fundraisers with Enemies of, Joe, enemies of Bernie Sanders who have tweeted out nasty things about Bernie Sanders. Uh, doing fundraisers with mega donors to corrupt Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Doing uh, fundraisers with corrupt uh, donors to Bill Clinton. Corrupt donor to Hillary Clinton. All the while, he's 
tried to bill himself as I'm going to be the most progressive president since FDR. Can you believe that? The most progressive president since FDR. Well, with people like Chris Corgi hosting fundraisers for you, that might be a little problem. Under the possible, let's, let's just call it a working theory, that Biden becomes president. Oh my God, this notion, like Bernie's saying, get rid of Trump and we'll fight Biden on day one. Love you, Bernie, but get your head out of the sand. The, you know, uh, the Young Turks and these other outlets, we, you know, we could move Biden left. Listen, I told you yesterday, a lot of people didn't like it, but I told you what I'm going to do. I told you, even though I know Biden's corrupt, even though I know he's a warmonger, even though I know he's a servant of Wall Street. About three weeks ago, I changed my mind. I am going to vote for him. I have my reasons, which is I think Trump is a psychopath. Um, I thought he was a sociopath. It's moved to psychopath. However, I'm not going to just cover my eyes just because I'm personally going to vote for Biden. I'm not going to tell other people what to do. And I'm also not going to censor myself to not tell you like it is. Biden's corrupt. And Biden is a neoliberal warmonger. And if he wins, even though I am willing to vote for him just to get rid of Trump, I'm not going to pretend to you, yeah, yeah, we'll fight him on day one and move him left. No, he's not moving left. And I'm about to tell you why. I'm about to tell you why. So in addition to doing fundraisers with Chris Corgi, the mega donor to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the mega donor to Hillary Clinton, the mega donor to Bill Clinton, the Bernie-hating DNC finance chair. Here's who Biden's considering in his cabinet. We start with Ron Klain. Everybody, you ever watch uh, Recount on HBO uh, before Kevin Spacey was exposed as a you know degenerate, a sexual deviant? He played Ron Klain in the movie about the 2000 Recount. Well, Mr. Mr. Klain, who is being talked about as Joe Biden's chief of staff. Oh, he is a veteran of Wall Street. Klain is the president of Case Holdings and serves as the general counsel for Revolution, a venture capital firm. Just what we need, a chief of staff from Wall Street for Joe Biden. Can't get enough. Secretary of State, possibly Al Blinken, a longtime neoliberal uh, member of the military-industrial complex, Susan Rice, the Republicans hate her for the whole Benghazi nonsense. Uh, I dislike her because she's a neoliberal warmonger, just like the rest of them. Chris Coons, uh, Biden's fellow senator from uh, Delaware, who he's BFF with. Uh, he was primaried uh, by a progressive. He is a corporate Democrat, sold out, bought off uh, neoliberal and Chris Murphy from Connecticut. I don't have a lot to say about Murphy. My guess is it would go to Susan Rice. Secretary of Defense. Oh, my God. Michelle Flournay. Holy cow. Do you know anything about Michelle Flournay, folks? Well, if Hillary Clinton had become president, Michelle Flournay was a lock for Secretary of Defense. Um, you know, if you're going to take if you if you have a choice between a, a warmongering man, a warmonger man or a warmonger uh, female, I guess we'll go with the female so we could be woke. But she was for the Iraq war. She was for Obama surging in Afghanistan, even though Obama ran on getting the hell out of Afghanistan. She was for the Iraq war. She was for Obama's troop surge in Afghanistan. She was for the dis she was for and highly 
part of, because she was part of the Obama administration, I think she was under Secretary of Defense or something like that. She was for uh, our disastrous intervention, i.e. occupation of Libya. Go ask Libya how it's working out now. They have modern day slave trades in Libya after we took out Gaddafi. She was for that. Um, I'll, I'll read you more. This from Common Dreams. If the Democrats manage to push Joe Biden over the finish line in November's election, he will find himself presiding over a decadent, declining empire. He will either continue the policies that have led the American empire to decadence and decline or seize the moment to move our nation into a new phase, a transition to a peaceful and sustainable post-imperial future. To the foreign policy team, Biden assembles will be key, including his choice for secretary of defense. But Biden's rumored favorite, Michelle Florinay, is not the gal for this historic moment. Yes, she would be breaking the glass ceiling as the first female secretary of defense. But as one of the architects of our endless wars and record military budgets, she would only help to steer the American empire farther down its current path of lost wars, corrupt militarism and terminal decline. So. In 1976, General John Glubb, the retired British commander of Jordan's Arab Legion, wrote a little booklet titled The Fate of Empires. Glubb observed how each of the world's empires evolved through six stages, which he called the Age of Pioneers, the Age of Conquest, the Age of Commerce, the Age of Affluence, the Age of Intellect, and the Age of Decadence and Decline. Despite enormous differences in technology, politics, and culture between empires and errors, the whole process in each and every case took about 250 years. Well, let's look at her record. As, a, as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy under President Clinton, so she worked under Bill Clinton. That's how far back she goes. Florinay was the principal author of the May 97 Quadrennial Defense Review, which laid the idea ideological foundation for the endless wars that followed under defense strategy the quadrennial defense review announced that the u.s would no longer no longer be bound by the u.n's charters prohibition against the threat of U u.s against the threat or use of military force it declared that when the interests at stake are vital we should do whatever it takes to defend them including when necessary the unilateral use of military power i think she left out of that document when oil and mineral interests are at stake, not U.S. defense interests. Florinay's career has been marked by the unethical spinning of revolving doors between the Pentagon, consulting firms, helping businesses procure Pentagon contracts, and military industrial think tanks like the Center for New American Security, which she co-founded in 2007. In 2009, she joined the Obama, Obama administration as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, where she helped engineer political and humanitarian disasters in Libya and Syria and a new escalation of the endless wars in Afghanistan before resigning in 2012. From 2013 to 2016, she joined Boston Consulting, trading on her Pentagon connections to boost the firm's military contracts from 1.6 million in 2013 to 32 million in 2016. Wow. By 2017, Florinay herself was raking in $452,000 a year. In 2017, she and Obama's de Deputy Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, founded their own corporate consulting business, where Florinay continued to cash in on her contracts by helping companies successfully navigate the complex bureaucracy of winning enormous Pentagon contracts. That's interesting because she co-founded it. She co-founded that company with Al Blinken, 
who's, be, who's being considered for Biden's secretary of state. He was cashing in on his government role to help procure d- defense contracts for private defense companies and take home a nice paycheck of his own. Wow. Uh, I guess that's what Biden meant. Nothing will fundamentally change. Holy cow. Holy cow. I mean, Trump has certainly, you know, elevated and continued the United Corporations of America's swamp. But Biden seems to be wanting to create a super swamp. That's right. A super swamp. But it gets better. It gets better, folks. So that's who he's considering for Secretary of State, Al Blinken, a neoliberal warmonger. And for Secretary of Defense, Michelle Florinay, a neoliberal warmonger who, whose best hits include supporting the Iraq War, Obama's Afghanistan surge, uh, disastrous, disastrous U.S. intervention in Libya and Syria. And then she went out and, like we all do in the United Corporations of America, cashed in on her warmongering and military-industrial complex complicity to make a lot of money in private defense contract businesses. And finally, she might become the defense secretary. But she's a woman, Jordan. Rah, rah! Give me a effing break. Now we're going to go to his potential treasury secretary. And this, this, I, I was excited for this moment. I was excited for this moment. Hope this doesn't trigger any, you know, people from Wolkpack Mountain. Is Elizabeth Warren not the biggest loser of the last five years. Elizabeth Warren, who sold her soul in 2016 and 2020, who sold her soul, who sold her progressive, if she ever was progressive, chops, because she was told you have more power if you're in the room than out of the room. She was told if you play the game from the inside, you'll you'll get the change you want. She thought, She thought, so Elizabeth Warren, who sold her soul, sold Bernie out in 2016, wouldn't endorse him. Sold him out again in 2020, wouldn't endorse him. Wouldn't drop out of the race when it was clear she had absolutely no shot. Could you imagine if Elizabeth Warren would have dropped out after New Hampshire when she came in an embarrassing fourth place in New Hampshire? Uh, We might be having a very, very different conversation right now because Bernie Sanders, if she had dropped out, after New Hampshire, would have probably won a much larger margin in Nevada, where he blew out Biden, would have probably picked up some of her votes in South Carolina, and on Super Tuesday, probably would have won a few more states that Warren's percentage uh, took away from him and helped Biden win. So Warren did all this because, for some strange reason, she was under the belief that if you play ball with the Joe Bidens of the world, if you play ball with the Hillary Clintons of the world, if you play ball with the neoliberal Democratic Party, remember that New York Times story that during the primary this year, she was going around the country having hot tea with Democratic Party politicians, with, uh, with big Democratic Party members, uh, with potential superdelegates trying to get their support. She was told and she believed that if she plays ball, if she sells Bernie out, not once, but twice, not to mention she said nothing while Native Americans and environmental activists were getting their head shot at, 
grenade shot at them, tear gas, pepper spray, freezing water at Standing Rock. She was told, we'll, let you, we'll, we'll throw you a bone. Maybe Treasury Secretary, maybe the Labor Department, something. We'll get you in that room because you were, she was told, if you're inside the room, that's where the power is and she can make a difference. Well, I told, I said, all the way back then, uh, Elizabeth Warren, there's a greater chance of me developing a six-pack in the next six months than you becoming Treasury Secretary under Joe Biden. Frankly, I'm not even convinced she would get a parking pass in the White House under a President Joe Biden, much less a cabinet position. Well, sorry to tell you, Elizabeth Warren, Biden is reportedly considering as his Treasury Secretary none other than Leal Brenard. Leal Brenard. If you've never heard that name, it's because most people don't know who she is. I'll give you a pretty quick rundown. She, under when she worked in Bill Clinton's administration, she goes all the way back to working in Bill Clinton's administration. What was her top role? Executing NAFTA. She worked in Bill Clinton's Labor Department or, or under Bill Clinton. I don't know what her position was, but in the economic, she was in an economic role for President Bill Clinton. She helped execute the disastrous NAFTA trade deal, which is part of the reason Trump won in 2016, because he was running on, re- on repealing NAFTA, even though he really didn't do that. And he just basically changed a few sentences in NAFTA and then pretended it was such a great deal. It's not. That's why Bernie voted against the new NAFTA. But what's amazing, she helped execute NAFTA under Bill Clinton. She also helped push for China, normal trade relations with China that has, ta- that has destroyed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs in America. The American Prospect did a great piece on her. Let me read a little bit for you. One telling indicator of Bernard's, one telling indicator of Bernard's non-populism is her stance on trade policy, where there is little evidence that she has strayed from her earlier orthodoxy. When she went to work for Clinton in 1997, two of her main assignments were implementing NAFTA and preparing the way for China's entry into the World Trade Organization, with few conditions other than granting access to investment banks such as Goldman Sachs a quid pro quo demanded by Robert Rubin, who was Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary, and another neoliberal hack that helped deregulate Wall Street, push NAFTA, repeal Glass-Steagall, and basically steal your money and give it to Wall Street bankers, and the former Goldman CEO who served as Clinton's Treasury Secretary. No other meaningful changes in China's entire mercantilist economic system were demanded or received. Bernard supported bilateral trade deals without serious labor rights. She expressed no concern about China's impact on American manufacturing or on jobs. Rather, Bernard saw outsourcing as a plus that resulted in cheaper consumer products. She shared the prevailing wishfulness about the impact of the trade deal on on liberalization with China. The world, quote, World Trade Organization accession will advance market-oriented economic reform. Ugh, when you hear market-oriented economic reform, run. WTO accession will advance market-oriented economic reform, the rule of law, 
and economic freedom in China, she said in one speech. It will more deeply integrate China into a rules-based economic system, which in turn will increase its stake in peace and security. Yeah, how's that working out, China and the rules-based economic system, while they're ripping off intellectual property in America? As the director of Brookings Global Economic Program in the early 2000s, Bernard was a traditional globalist. She was a huge booster of the now-defunct Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, which was substantially a corporate wish list presented as a trade liberalization deal that benefited the U.S. and somehow contained China. Bernard continued to be a strong defender of the WTO and the trade assumptions that underlie the WTO system. When she moved to Treasury under President Obama, one of her responsibilities was to review China's currency operations to determine whether Beijing should be branded a currency manipulator. She resisted all efforts to make such a finding. The policy of rejecting that approach came from higher-ups who, na- who naively hoped that a modus vivendi with China might be found. Bernard was not just a loyalist, but an enthusiast. When Congress toughened the law in 2015, after Bernard had left Treasury to add grounds for citing and punishing Beijing's currency manipulation, some progressives in Congress joked that the legislation should be named the Leal Bernard Memorial Act. To dumb it down for you, this Leal, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, so apologies if I'm not, uh, Miss Brainerd, helped push through NAFTA helped push through normal trade relations with China, prevented naming China a currency manipulator, which is one of the few things I actually agree with Donald Trump on. And if she becomes Treasury Secretary, folks, it ain't, well, it's going to happen regardless of her because Biden wants it. It's not if the TPP comes back. It's when. It ain't if, it's when. A President Joe Biden will enact the Trans-Pacific partnership write it down put it in your pipe and smoke it for those of you who work for a living for those of you that have been hurt by nafta by those of you that have been hurt by these free trade deals uh labor leaders including the aflcio has said that if the tpp ever came to pass this is when they opposed it under biden it would be the final nail in American labor coffin. Let me say a bit again. The AFL-CIO, Richard Trumpka, said in opposition to the TPP, if the TPP ever came to pass, it would be the final nail in the labor movement's coffin. And as I've been telling you for over a year, Joe Biden, he's not a union man. He's a fake union man. His whole career, his whole career has hurt unions. He takes money from union busting companies. This is not a friend of American union. He's not a friend of labor. He's not a friend of the working man or woman. He's a, he's a corporate servant who just happens not to be Donald Trump. Frankly, I think if Joe Biden was running against Marco Rubio, I think he'd be losing. I think if Joe Biden was running against Mitt Romney, I think he'd be losing. I think if Joe Biden was running against, I don't know, Tom Cotton, God forbid, he'd be losing. I think if he was running against, I don't know, Nikki Haley. I think if he was running against almost any Republican, probably not Ted Cruz, I think he'd be losing. 
It's the same. It's it's Hillary Clinton 2016 in reverse because I think anyone other than Hillary Clinton, I think, could have beat Trump. And I think pretty much anybody but Trump could be Biden. He's a terrible candidate. He's also a lucky candidate because he's been gifted by a psychopath president. Um, I don't know if you know, saw this, but it super, super, super scary. I'm going to play this for you. You might not know the context, but this is Donald Trump today. We sent in the U.S. Marshals. Took 15 minutes. It was over. 15 minutes. It was over. We got him. They knew who he was. They didn't want to arrest him. And 15 minutes that ended. Anyway, but and they called themselves peaceful protesters. You wonder what Trump is talking about. Um, Once I read a little bit more to you, Trump basically just admitted that the United States Marshals, potentially on his command, went in and just executed an American citizen on American soil with no trial, no jury, just executed. If you don't know what I'm talking about, buckle up. This is from the New York Times. Michael Reinhall was on the run. A few days after a shooting left a far-right Trump supporter dead on the streets of Portland, Oregon, Mr. Reinall, an Antifa activist who had been named in the news media as a focus of the investigation, feared that vigilantes were after him, not to mention the police. Even some of his close friends didn't know where he was, but the authorities knew. On September 3rd, about 120 miles north of Portland, Mr. Reinall was getting into his Volkswagen station wagon when a pair of unmarked Sport utility vehicles roared through the quiet streets, screeching to a halt just in front of his bumper. Members of a U.S. Marshals Task Force jumped out and unleashed a hail of bullets that shattered windows, whizzed past bystanders, and left Mr. Reinhold dead in the street. Attorney General Bill Barr trumpeted the operation as a significant accomplishment that removed a, quote, violent agitator. The officers had opened fire, he said, when Mr. Reinhall, quote, attempted to escape arrest and produced a firearm during the encounter. Oh, I've heard this story before. But a reconstruction of what happened that night, based on the accounts of people who witnessed the confrontation and the preliminary findings of investigators, produces a much different picture. One that raises questions about whether law enforcement officers made any serious attempt to arrest Mr. Reinhall before killing him. In interviews with 22 people who were near the scene, all but one said they did not hear officers identify themselves or give any commands before opening fire. In their official statements, not yet made public, the officers offered differing accounts of whether they saw Mr. Reinhall with a weapon. One told investigators he thought he saw Mr. Reinhall raise a gun inside the vehicle before the firing began but two others said that they didn't. Mr. Reinhold did have a uh, 380 caliber handgun on him when he was killed, according to the county sheriff team that is running a criminal homicide investigation into his death. But the weapon was found in his pocket. An AR-style, an AR-style rifle was found apparently untouched in a bag in his car. Five eyewitnesses said in interviews that the gunfire began the instant the vehicles arrived. None of them saw Mr. Reinhold holding a weapon, A single shell casing of the same caliber as the handgun he was carrying was was found inside his car. 
Garrett Lewis, who watched the shooting began, begin while trying to get his eight-year-old son out of the line of fire, said the officers arrived with such speed and violence that he initially assumed they were drug dealers gunning down a foe until he saw their law enforcement fests. Quote, I respect cops to the utmost, but things were definitely in no way, shape, or form done properly. The U.S. Marshal Service declined to comment for, for this article, citing the pending investigation. The agency previously said that it attempted to, quote, peacefully arrest Mr. Reinhall and that he had threatened the lives of law enforcement officers. Trump, who has described the racial justice protests that have roiled the nation as the work of lawless criminals, praised the operation. This guy was a violent criminal and the U.S. Marshals killed him, the president's told Fox News. And I'll tell you something. That's the way it has to be. There has to be retribution when you have criminals like this. The shot felt like the beginning of a war. Mr. Reinhold had joined protesters in Portland in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing by the Minneapolis police in May, writing online that they were waging a necessary war with the potential to, quote, fix everything. He devoted himself to Black Lives Matter movement and once touted himself as 100% Antifa all the way. 48 years old, he was a contractor and professional snowboarder, had run into trouble with the law in June when he was cited for driving under the influence of a controlled substance and having an unlicensed firearm in the car. Later during the protest, the police arrested him and cited him for carrying a loaded firearm in a public place, but prosecutors dropped the charges. When the protests against the police got underway in Portland, he carved a niche for himself, providing security, watching for agitators. After a caravan... Of supporters of Mr. Trump arrived in, an, in Portland on August 29th and be, began clashing with protesters, a security camera showed Reinhold keeping an eye on one of them. Aaron J. Danielson, a supporter of the far-right group Patriot Prayer, who was walking with a can of bear repellent and an expanded baton. Seconds later, a separate live stream video captured Mr. Danielson being shot, and the Oregonian newspaper reported later that Mr. Reinhold was under, under investigation in the case. In an interview, while he, was while he was in hiding that Vice News broadcasted on September 3rd, Mr. Reinhold said he, was fired in he had fired in self-defense. Quote, that shot felt like the beginning of a war, he said. On the day the interview aired, officers with the U.S. Marshals Pacific Northwest Violent Offender Task Force met for an intelligence briefing. The team, which included a mix of federal, state, and local law enforcement enforcement agencies already knew that Reinhold was staying in a brick complex of apartments in Lacey, Washington. The task force had information from an informant passed on by the Portland police about his location and possession of firearms, said Lieutenant Ray Brady of the Thurston County Sheriff's Office. I'm going to skip around. Mr. Reinhold left the apartment and walked towards his Volkswagen parked along the street roughly 100 feet away. Two officers positively identified him, who proceeded to start the car, said Lieutenant Brady, who shared some of the initial findings of the investigation with the New York Times. They decided to make an immediate arrest, the officers told investigators, in part to avoid a high-speed chase. Mr. Smith said he and his friends turned their heads to the sound of a vehicle accelerating rapidly, headed southbound towards the street where Reinhold was walking. A second law enforcement SUV, which had been parked across from Mr. Smith's house, moved in with such speed that the friends thought they were witnessing a road rage incident or a gang shooting. 
Mr. Smith and Mr. Cutler ran after the unmarked SUVs watching, uh, ran after the unmarked SUVs watching as they turned onto Mr. Reinhold Street, one cutting the corner and speeding over the grass. Nate Dingus, who according to Lieutenant Brady lived in the apartment where Reinhold was staying, said Mr. Reinhold was chewing a gummy worm as he approached his station wagon with a phone in one hand and a bag in the other. Mr. Dingus said in an interview that officers began jumping out of the vehicles before they had even come to a complete stop and that one of them opened fire immediately before any commands had been given. Another man who was walking his dog nearby said that a burst of about 10 gunshots began almost immediately after the SUVs came to a halt and that he did not recall hearing any command. Mr. Lewis, who was on the other side of the scene, some 140 feet from Mr. Reinhold, also said the police opened fire immediately without giving any warnings, as did Mr. Smith and Mr. Cutler. Quote, there was no get out of the car. There was no stop. There was no nothing. They just got out of the car and started shooting. Mr. So I wanted to read that whole thing. It was a little long to explain to you. Essentially, essentially, Reinhall was an Antifa activist, big supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement, who the Portland police, the federal government suspected of killing a Donald Trump supporter in Portland a Donald Trump supporter who, by the way, was part of a white supremacist group. Reinhall told Vice News while he was in hiding, I shot him in self-defense. I have no idea what happened. I don't know if he shot him in self-defense. I don't know if he shot him, you know, in, in criminal homicide. I don't know. My hunch, based on knowing these Patriot prayer people and these Proud Boys, my gut is he probably shot in self-defense. Putting that aside, Reinhold was the suspected shooter who killed the Trump supporter in Portland. So the U.S. Marshals were going in to arrest him. He was in hiding. But when you go in to arrest somebody, you generally don't jump out of the car before the car has stopped. You generally give commands that you are the police or you are the U.S. Marshals. You remember what happened with Breonna Taylor? They claim they announced themselves. What the New York Times reporting, and props to the New York Times in this case, good, good investigation, what they are reporting is that essentially Trump's U.S. Marshals rolled up and shot this guy dead, execution style, making no attempt to arrest him making no attempt to even give him commands of who they were. This isn't one witness saying this. This is two, almost two dozen witnesses said the U.S. Marshals didn't, didn't make any commands. They didn't announce themselves. They didn't try to arrest him. They just started shooting. And of course, like we've constantly for the last 30, 40, 50, however years, What's, what's the rationale for that from the U.S. Marshals? Oh, we saw, him, we saw him have a gun. We saw him leaning towards a gun. According to the friend that he was staying with, he was walking, chewing, holding gummy worms and something else in the other hand. 
And don't believe me. Don't just take my word that they shot him execution style. I mean, that's what President Trump said. I already played it for you. President Trump literally said at his rally today that they didn't even try to arrest him. I'll play it for you one more time. We sent in the U.S. Marshals. Took 15 minutes, it was over. 15 minutes, it was over. We got him. They knew who he was. They didn't want to arrest him. And 15 minutes, that ended. Anyway, but and they called themselves peaceful protesters. The law and order president. 